Amen, indeed. Celebration, I, I, you know, when we gather together uh, and celebrate and remember what brings us together, what unites us together, it truly is a celebration. Every Sunday, we remember our Lord and how he saves us, and it's a thing that causes rejoicement, right? Rejoicement, rejoicing. I make up words too, you know, if it's a thing that uh, should move us uh, to um, excitement and praise as we realize what he's done for us. I can't help but um, our response should be kind of like my daughter who was just dancing in the uh, um, aisle there. Uh, that's probably more due to that she started dance classes than anything. But, um, you know, that should be our natural movement is that we, we are rejoicing the fact that though sinners... God lavishes his love on us through Jesus Christ. That's a great thing. And that's an important thing to remember as we hit this text this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time as we could gather as a church as we open up your word. Lord, we pray for each and every one of us that we can come to your word hoping to see you, hoping to understand you, hoping to grow in your ways. And so, Lord, I just pray for this time that you bring your word to life in our minds and our hearts so that we can follow you all of our days. Lord, we love you. We seek you for all these things. Amen. So you pick up your Bible, and I'm bet, and I'm willing to bet that we're all usually amazed when we start to read. But not just because there's truth that resonates out of it, which is true. Not just because it's profound and, and we can see our God. Yes, it's all true and it amazes us. But we also amazes us because of how real it is. Because we find stories that show the truth of who humanity is that could have been write, written for this time right now. We find stories that run the gamut and show, show all the the insides and outs of just what humanity is. Stories that make us wonder if there's even hope for humanity. Stories that show uh, romance and hope and hate and murder and so much more. That's all happens when we start reading through the Bible. Several years ago, I was told this story that in our children's ministry, after reading the Bible story for that week, someone responded with something along the lines of, who comes up with this stuff? And how often do we respond like that when we read the Bible and like, whoa, wait a minute. This was preserved for us for all time? Who comes up with this story? And of course, we know that everything in the Bible is recorded for our benefit and for our growth, and that we know that God comes up with this stuff, and he's recording it for us. Which boggles the mind, because if I was writing the Bible, I might do it a little differently. I think I would make the main characters look a little better than they do. But the Bible doesn't do that. It tells us like it is. It presents these people who we like to look at as heroes of the faith with warts and all. And all. And so it presents people, and we can rejoice with them as they follow God, and we can wince with them and mourn with them when they're just like us and don't. And that's the Bible. It shows us the truth of humanity. And so today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 34. And if you've already read it, as you prepare for the Sunday, you'll know that is actually a hard chapter. Because Genesis chapter 34 shows the reality of sin. 
It shows the reality of humanity pursuing their own ends apart from God. That we see in this chapter, this, the heinousness and the horribleness of human action and how bad it truly can be. How destructive sin is for humanity. But in the midst of it, there is hope even if the chapter itself does not show us that hope. Because we have hope in Christ. And so let's read Genesis chapter 34. And as we go, I'll stop and offer some explanation along the way as we read this chapter in the book of Genesis. So if you have Bibles, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 34. If you don't, have no worries. It'll be on the screen. And it starts like this. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom he had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Well, let's set this up. This verse is setting up the whole thing. And so we have to backtrack and just explain what has happened in the previous chapters. And we know that Jacob um, is leaving uh, Haran, where he was with Laban, and he stopped, and he met with Esau, and they made amends. But yet, he chose to not go back with Esau, and he ends up in this different town where he was not supposed to end up, and he sets up his, um, his tents, and he makes some booths for his livestock, and he's dwelling there. And now we have Dinah, his daughter, his only daughter, from the wife that he really does not care about. She's out to see the women of the land. And to us, this seems really innocent, but anyone reading this in, in the context of their culture goes, wait a minute, women don't travel about on their own, and it seems like no one cares that that Dinah is out on her lonesome visiting the people who are not of her people in this land. And that sets up the horrible situation that's about to follow. In verse 2, two, it says, And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, uh, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved a young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, get me this woman, this girl, for my wife. This is a horrible thing. There's no excuse for what happened here. Our hearts should break for Dinah in this situation, that she was taken advantage of. She was assaulted by this prince of the land, and this guy, Shechem, has it all sorts of backwards and twisted up. For he assaulted her, and then it says that his heart, you know, he, he loved her, and so he wanted her as a wife. I don't know how more twisted and, and backwards this could be. And so he seeks to address this wrongness of his action, even though it won't go away. Continues in verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And, they, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. And so we see Shechem and Harmon, they, they, they come in and they're trying to make amends and they're trying to address what happened, and Jacob basically raises no comment because his boys aren't with him. And so we see a, a massive passivity in Jacob, and when the, their, the brothers of Dinah come back, of course when they hear about this, they're angry. They're indignant, because this is outrageous. But the story continues, it says, But Harmon spoke with them, saying, the, son, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. 
Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get prosperity in it, property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and a gift and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be a wife. Harmon and Shechem are trying to make amends because they know what they did was wrong. And they're seeking to unite these two people and says, hey, let's just move over what happened. And we can come one people. You can settle here. You can have property here. We'll, 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 we'll interbreed with each other. We'll intermarry with each other. Um, and Shechem even goes, hey, I'll give you whatever you ask as a bride price. Because he knows he, what he did was wrong. And he knows these people are mad. And this is kind of outlandish because a bride price was really kind of established already. But he's saying, just, just ask. Ask and I'll give it to you. Which sets up what comes up next. Verse 13 says, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Harmon deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, you, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And so we see right here, they answered deceitfully. Shechem says, hey, ask me whatever you wish. And they, and they go, hey, we got a plan. And they said, you guys, all of your people must be circumcised or we can't intermarry. And so they use God's covenant, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, to exact, exact their revenge of the people in the city. And it continues. The words uh, please Harmon and Harmon's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Harmon and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell on the land and trade in it. Before behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Harmon and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of the city. So Harmon and Shechem, they go to their men of their city, and I imagine this is a tough sell. Hey guys, let's get circumcised. But see what they leave out. They don't even mention Dinah because that's, that's Shechem's deal. What they do is like, hey, guys, these people are so wealthy. Look at all their livestock. Look at all their property. If we intermarry with them, if we become one people, all that will be ours. And so he, they play on the people's interests and say, let's do this. And they're like, okay, let's do this. Sure. It says on the third day, in verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore, the guys who just got circumcised, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the field, in, in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, 
They captured and plundered. Plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by, by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and Prezalites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The plan was executed. Simeon and Levi went in, stormed the castle, took back their sister, killed all the guys. The other brothers said, well, this seems too good to be true. Let's take everything. And they came in and they plundered the city and everything in that city became theirs. And Jacob's response, he was mad, not because they had twisted the sign of the covenant, not because they had broken their promise to these people. He was mad, why? Because maybe now the inhabitants of the land would hurt him because they did this thing. I don't know if there is a chapter in the Bible that shows so clearly the consequences and the results and the implications and just the mess of sin as this one. And when we read this, we, we, our hearts should break. For we see people in real-life situations being harmed and hurt, and we see sin resulting in sin, and we see hurt resulting in hurt, and we see the reality of how sin and lawlessness has impacts on people. And so what are we supposed to take from a chapter like this in the Bible? Well, I think we're supposed to take this. Sin demands a Redeemer. That sin is crying out with all of its heinousness and horribleness. It's screaming in our lives, in our society, in the world in which we live, that something is not right. Is that unscratchable if, uh, itch that nags our minds that something needs to be put right, something needs to be made better than it is, that the world is not designed to be like this, that sin demands someone do something about the state of the world, that the injustices need to be fixed, that the wrongdoings need to be undone, that hurts need to be redeemed. And sin demands that we, we, who are not only caught up in the effects of sin, but are trapped in the cycle of our sin ourselves, need someone to free us from it. We need someone to redeem us, buy us back from our sin. Sin demands a redeemer. This chapter is very clear just how bad humanity can be, how bad sin can be. And this chapter leads us to a profound truth that I think we all innately know in our hearts, and that is sin begets sins. The fact that all of humanity are sinners, that we have a condition of our heart that ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, all of humanity has this heart condition of sin. And this heart condition of sin leads us into all the various sins that we commit. As this fatal heart condition that separates from God and results in us going our own way and doing our own thing, and that's why we hurt people and people hurt us, and the world is fractured how it is. It's all because of this condition we live in apart from God. You know, a common saying during our times, and we, we all probably have said it, is the phrase, well, people are basically good. 
And that is, I, we understand when people say that because we can look at people and we understand that within all certain, all people, there is goodness there. And we want to say people are basically good, but the Christian has to have a more nuanced answer. Because we look at humanity and we say, yes, every single human is created in the image of God. And so there is goodness there. There is the image of God there. But that image has been tarnished. And so everyone still has worth and value. And we should treat people with love and respect. But because sin has entered, people do horrible things to themselves, to others, to the world. And so we recognize that everyone is in this position of being made in the image of God, but yet is twisted by sin, hurting people. And when we look at our societies and our cultures, we realize it's not getting better. Humans are still struggling with the same things they've always struggled with because humans are human, fallen from what they're designed to be. But when we read this chapter, we see the fact that sin begets sins. We see that sin compounds upon itself. So let's just take Jacob and where he is in the story. And we see how sin compounds upon sin. Now Jacob is in this, in this realm, in this place, uh, the city with, uh, where Shechem lives and Harmon lives. And he's not supposed to be there. He was called home by God. He was called back to where Isaac was, and yet he takes a detour and visits Esau, all good, but then he lies to Esau and goes his own way. And so he's really where he's not supposed to be, where God does not, has not called him to be. And that sets the stage for Dinah being out, being away from her family, which sets the stage for Shechem assaulting her and, and sinning against her and her family, which sets the stage for her family having, enacting this uh, cycle of revenge, which sets the stage for this whole city collapsing into ruin. And we see that sin compounds upon sin, sin leads to sins, and this is this a mess. But if we know the fact of humanity and who we are and how we fall, and this shouldn't surprise us, because all of us, all people, are sinners. So of course these people sin. Of course they mess up. This seems like a pretty great and horrible example of it. But everyone does it. That sin left unchecked, this leads to more chaos, more hurt, more sin. When I read this chapter, I can't help but think of James Chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, when, when James talks about, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Such a vivid imagery of how sin seems to grow within us. We're tempted and we're enticed and we give into it, and sin grows and brings forth death. In the world, confirms this, that sin leads to sin. There are actually studies that show that when a person lies, their brains are rewired to make lying easier. That falling into sin actually makes the same kind of sin easier for that person to do. And that uh, <clears throat> Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy, how people's consciousness can be seared through their doing, that actually, because they keep following wrong, that they kind of forget what right and wrong is. That they lose sense of their bearings. That we can become desensitized 
to sin. I just think about my own life, and I'm not one to make a big deal about language. I don't get offended by language. But then I had kids, and I realized a lot of stuff I watched um, contained a lot of things I don't want my kids to listen to. And I realized, wow, I had become desensitized to what was just going into my ears. That we can be desensitized to the sin around us in a way that is so much easier to follow that. Sin results in sin. And we see cycles of sin around us. That this text shows us that the sin of Shechem caused the brothers to sin by murder and deceit. And we understand that because we live in a tick-for-tack world. Someone hurts us, we want to get them back. Someone wrongs us, we want to wrong them back. Someone, you know, insults us, and we want to take them down. We understand we can get involved in these cycles. And the truth is, that's not our hope. That won't result in any good. Martin Luther King Jr. said, returning violence for violence multiplies violence. Adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Which means sin demands a redeemer. That our sin and acting on our sin against people's sin against us will never solve the issue. We need light. We need the redeemer to drive out the darkness. We need the redeemer to break the cycle. But Jacob is a great one to learn from in this chapter. Not in a good way, because he teaches a valuable lesson that passivity opens the way for sin. Look at Jacob in this chapter. He's not the outstanding father that he should be. He's not the outstanding hero of the faith that we might expect him to be. That Jacob is passive in almost everything that happens in this chapter. He's passive in leading his daughter Dinah. Doesn't even care that she's out with the women of the land. He's passive when Harmon comes to him. After he hears about what happened to his daughter, he does not speak up. He does not object. He doesn't argue that they should make it right, as if he, even if they could. What does he do? He holds his peace until his boys get back. That he's passive in leading his boys. They come, they're, they're mad, as everyone should be, and they plot, and they're going to do this plan, and he just sits by and lets them do what he wants them going to do. He doesn't lead them in how they should respond to the situation. He doesn't lead them in how they should process this. He doesn't lead them in how they're going to talk to these people about what happened. He just lets them do what they want to do, which is kill and plunder. And at the very end, he's still passive. When they did what they did, and they come back, and he's like, man, you guys are going to make this tough for me. Still just thinking about himself and not leading his family well. Passivity makes sin so much easier. Passivity opens the door for sin as we just drift away from God and his ways. I love how Hebrews 2, 1 puts it when it says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's easy to drift, isn't it? It doesn't take any effort. Just go with the flow. Don't rock the boat. Don't cause any trouble. Don't stir up waves. So easy to drift 
along and just go where everyone else is going. And when we do, we drift away from what we have heard of God. We drift away from what he has called us to do and the ways he's called us to live. We drift away from God and the goodness that he has for us, which is God himself. We drift away from what gives us life, which is the word of God and the spirit that brings it to life in our lives. Passivity opens the way for sin. We have a ministry here at River Valley called God's Nights. It's a ministry aimed at high school guys, and it's trying to give them a definition of manhood, how a godly man lives in this world because the world's going to be telling them so many different things. And one of the pillars of this ministry is the definition of manhood, how the Bible describes what a man is. Now, ladies, don't tune out because this applies for us all. But this definition of manhood is a real man rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and lives for the greater reward. But look at the first part of that definition, rejects passivity. Why would, when people are making a ministry like this, put this forth first, rejects passivity? Because sin twists all of us. Men and women alike, it twists us to make us passive about life. It twists us and makes us apathetic about what we're doing. It twists us and takes our drive away and we just let life happen. And yet that is not the life that God has called us to because God calls us to live passionately and intentionally for him. That God calls us and says, I have redeemed you. I have made you my own. I have given you life. And now live that life now that you're supposed to love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your others as yourself. This is what you're called to, to be intentional every day in your life, that you get up as a Christian and you suit up with the armor of God and you go to work living for God. Not that that earns us anything, not that that achieves our salvation, for he has already saved us when we bring nothing to the table. But because he's given us this life, he now says live for me and everything, that we can't drift because the Christian life is one of passionate pursuit of love, first for God and out of that for others as well. When we're passive, we let sin walk all over us. When we're passive, we let sin lead us by the hand right into death. But God has given us everything we need for life and godliness to walk in his ways. He's given us the Holy Spirit who resides in us, empowering us to walk and to live for him. He has given us the word of God as a lamp unto our feet. He has given us his son who has done it already for us so now that we can live in his power, the son's power. And so we need to not be passive, but live for God. You know, during this time, this last, I don't even want to count the months, of quarantine, social isolation, this disruption of normal and the new normal, during this time, I confess it's so easy to be passive. It's so easy when the normal routines of life are disrupted to be passive and just let Days flow into days, and you're like, what day is it? It's so easy to just not be active or intentional and pursuing 
not just relationships with people was harder to see, but to pursuing God. And that I need to be called out of it. And maybe you need to be called out of that pass, passivity that has come up during this time as well. And guess what? The Redeemer is calling, Christ is calling, saying, I have done everything for you. Now live for me, live passionately, and pursue me with intention and purpose. What would your life look like? Or what would this look like in your life to be intentionally pursuing God? To be fighting passivity in all of its forms. What would that look like for you to be making those, taking those steps to not let passivity reign, but be intentional in following God? We can only do this because we have a Redeemer, and sin demands a Redeemer. When we look at this account, it shows the reality that someone who knows God, someone who God knows, a God follower, can struggle. That Christians will sin and stumble. Because we see Jacob here, and we see Jacob coming off a high. He had just wrestled with God and yet prevailed and yet was renamed Israel. This is, he's given a new identity in God. He's the guy, he's, he's the, the last patriarch of the people of God. And we see him coming off this great high, and yet now he's right back down in the low as he is sinning, forgetting his mission, forgetting what he's called to. But he has these ups and downs, and when you read these stories of these people in the Bible, that's what they have is these ups and downs. But that describes our lives as well, doesn't it? The Christian life. We have ups and downs. We can seem to be at track at one point, and all of a sudden the next point, we're stumbling and we're falling and we're messing up. And that is life. We struggle with this. And I love, there's this Latin phrase that was coined during the Reformation in the 1600s when the Protestant church was formed, which is simul justice et peccator. Excuse my bad Latin. But it basically means just, at the same time, sinner. And it's recognizing that human, uh, Christians, when they come to know Christ, we are just. We are justified in Christ, not by what we've done, but by what Christ has done. And so God looks upon us and says, you are mine, you're my saints, you are just in my sight. But at the same time, on our own, we're sinners. We still fell. We stumble. We fall. We mess up. up. We hurt people. And this is the struggle the Christian life is in. That we have this great promise that God has justified us, but the reality is every day with this new life, we still mess up and we long for and we hope for that day when this reality that God has declared becomes our reality right now in the end, when we're glorified and are with him forever. But we see the exact same thing in Jacob's life, that people who follow God will mess up. We cannot live perfectly. And what does that mean for us? Well, it gives us hope. It should give us hope. For we hope that when we're messed up, when we fail, that's not the end of the story. That God's story is greater than our mess-ups, and God's story will carry us through the end. That when we mess up, we know that Christ is greater than that mess-up. He can redeem that mess-up. He has already paid the price for that sin, and he's going to bring us back to reconciliation with our Father because of who he is, the great Redeemer. And so it encourages us not to give us hope just in our mess-ups, but also encourages us that we have a new life in Christ. 
and that we live more and more out of that new reality that Christ has purchased for us. And so we live out of that new life he's given us more and more as we grow in his ways. And it protects us from two extremes. It protects us from the self-righteous guy that looks around and says, eh, I think I have this together. I'm not like that riffraff over there. And it protects us from the other stream, the extreme of when we're in despair, saying, man, I am riffraff, and I'm not like them. Then it shows us the reality of who we are in Christ, that he has paid for it all, and when we still sin, we have the hope that we have a Redeemer that brings us back to God and intercedes on our behalf. So this gives us hope and an encouragement to live a new life, all because of our Redeemer, and it's the reality that sin demands a Redeemer that we look to Christ in this. And that's the greatest aspect of this passage, this chapter. If you want to say anything's great about this chapter, is that it forces us to look to Christ. It points us to our need, which gets us searching for our Savior. It points us that we need a Redeemer. Because as we said, this, makes it, this passage, this chapter, makes the reality of sin crystal clear. Here's Israel, newly minted from Jacob, the promised people, and yet sin abounds. They don't have it all together. They twist that which is good. They deceive, murder, and plunder. Sin seems to still be reigning. And our lives can feel the same, can't they? We look around, sin still seems to be reigning. We look at our own lives as we fail to do what we're supposed to do, and as we, we don't do what we've been called to do, as we mess up in sin and stumble, and we say sin still seems to be reigning. As we twist that which is good, as we don't follow as we should, as we don't love people as we're called to, and we say sin still seems to be reigning, where is our hope? When we look to the truth of who God is, and it seems so distant, when we look at the horribleness of the reality of that people hurt people and hurt people hurt people, and we see this and we say, what is our hope? Sin still seems to be reigning. And it's in that darkness that Jesus Christ enters. The eternal Son of God who came down and lived a true human life like one of us. That for a little over 30 years, he lived just like us, like you and me. The only difference is that he always walked in God's ways and was always obedient and that he did what we could not do and he did what we do not do. He lived a sinless life, righteous before his God. That he is the redeemer we need. He's called the redeemer because he redeems his people. He resets our value. That when you redeem something in the store, let's think of a coupon or a gift certificate, you get money in exchange for it. Well, he buys us back. He redeems us. He resets our value by giving his life for us. That on that cross, as he paid for our sins, he gives us value. Anyone who comes to know their sin and confesses their sin and going astray and that he is their Lord, he gives us value in us. He redeems us. He saves us. He makes us his own. Even when we have thrown our lives away by going our own way and not being obedient to God and being rebels and doing our own thing, he 
values us and saves us. He came and gave his life for ours so that we could be redeemed, we could be revalued as the people of God. And this means when we see sin reigning, we look to Christ. The Redeemer that we have, the Redeemer that we need, we look to Christ when sin sin seems big, look to Christ. When sin seems to be dominating, look to Christ. We have a tendency to look around and be overwhelmed by sin, the world, and the enemy, and underwhelmed by our great God. But Christ makes us look up and see just how great our Lord is. That we should be underwhelmed by the forces of sin, the world, and the enemy. And overwhelmed by the glorious might of our almighty Father who gave Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, who brings us back, who takes sinners and makes them saints, who takes orphans and makes them his family, who takes rebels and make them his people. We are, should be overwhelmed by our great Lord so that we see how he lavishes his love upon us. And we know the truth that sin demands a redeemer, and we have a redeemer in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look to him for our hope. We look to him for our salvation. We look to him for our life. Praise be to our God for redeeming us, sinners, through Jesus Christ. Because where once sin reigned, now Christ reigns. Amen? Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, praise be to your name for you are good, you are mighty, you are overwhelming. That when we see the truth of who you are, we should be awestruck. We should be amazed at your power, your might, your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your love that is lavished upon us. Praise be to your name, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we reflect upon chapter 34 of Genesis, that these chapters, and there's many like it, that show the fallenness of humanity, they push us to see you. They raise our eyes to look for where our hope comes from. And as you, in the sending of your Son, Lord, we love you. We seek you. We ask that all of us can fight against passivity. All of us can fight against sin in our life. All of us can follow and live out the new life that you've given us in Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Let's all stand together and sing how deep the Father's love for us.